So today we are finishing our series that we've been doing for the last couple of months. Uh, we are finishing Matter Matters. Um, just out of interest, has this been good? Yes? No? Take it or leave it? Thumbs up? A few thumbs up? Not getting that one, that's good. Cool. We have been just, this, this journey that this series has been trying to take us on if I could just succinctly say it one last time before I hand over to our guest this morning, it's this. We have been trying to pursue what it is as a Christ follower to look at the material world around us, the materiality of life through the lens of what, what a disciple is meant to see. And one of the things that we have been critiquing and uh, asking a good question about is where do we get this idea of this sort of Greek dualism of our spirit and our body being separated and divorced from each other? What about spirit and the world being divorced, not as in a pantheistic way where God is in creation, but as in God has blessed and made creation sacred? You know, all sorts of things. Like it's been quite a journey, and and um, I hope that there's some little sound bites from the last several months that you're thinking about and ruminating on and thinking about it further. And my encouragement would be, every talk we do, we always try and land them in practices. We always try and land them in, go and try and do this. Go and try and do that. Go and give this a go. Experience this. Um, and my hope would be, you know, let's not move on too quickly, but let's keep practicing the things that this series has called us to practice. You know, keep practicing those things of thinking about your food and your consumption, alcohol. Keep thinking about your way in which you are going about your physical life. Keep thinking about um, sexuality. Keep thinking about all of these things. Keep, keep working with this. This is not just because we're finishing today does it finish. We, we want to keep going in the conversation that the series has started us on. And so, in the pursuit of that, what I'm calling you to be is the title of today's talk. I'm calling you to be an earthy church. I'm calling you to be a church that doesn't disregard our moment in this space and time. And the phrase an earthy church, when I titled the talk for today that, comes from an idea from one of my heroes, Eugene Peterson. But today, we don't have Eugene Peterson, but we do have what I would class as probably one of the pretty second, you know, next, next just off the rank, I reckon, options. This is my dear friend, and I would like to grow up to be like him in quite a few ways one day. But I think that he is an absolute gift, not only to us today, but a gift to the church of Aotearoa. His name is Johnny Rankin, and he is the academic dean of Vineyard College, New Zealand. And he is uh, to sort of more of the academic and thinking deeply uh, sort of side of things, uh, such a gift in this moment of time. Now, Johnny is one of my friends. He was actually the best man at my wedding. He was my best man. We wore kilts together for a day. Um, we've had some good adventures. We've gone on great road trips and, and had a lot of fun. Uh, but it's interesting. We're both sons of pastors. We're both sons of church planters. And uh, today I have the joy of, of, of introducing you to him as not only one of my dear friends, but also a man of integrity, a man who's walking out this thing for himself with integrity and faithfulness. And so I want you to welcome Johnny Rankin. Johnny, can you come? Yeah. I'll pray for you. 
God, we thank you for the work that Johnny has put in, the mahi up to this point, and amongst a life with a young family and a busy uh, workload. Thank you for his sacrifice and thank you for the time he's given for us today. We honour it and we bless it. And God, would you now take what he's prepared, these words on a page and inscribed in his heart, and would you bring your spirit, bring the edge of your kingdom to this moment, we pray. Bring them to life. Wairo Tapu, you're welcome. Bless this man as he speaks and shares with us. We receive him as a guest, honour him as the gift he is today. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Dan. It's good to be here. Uh, yes, and that was, uh, I don't know if I would ever back up that I'm anything like it. Eugene Peterson, I'm, I'm uh, just an ordinary bloke, but anyway, it's, um, it is a real honour to be here. Um, and to share on this topic, uh, I've been a, I guess I'm a, a closet Central Vineyard fan. I, I've been listening to the podcast and uh, yeah, listening back to the past few sermons and just kind of blown away actually by the, the depth of the thinking that's going on in this community um, and the, the courage too to actually tackle some of these real significant cultural idols I think that, that uh, around uh, developing mature materiality. So to develop a mature materiality is really to push against the, uh, a tide that would prefer that this church would remain materially immature and that we would be immature Christians. Um, <clears throat> and to push against the tide is, is difficult, but you're in good company with Jesus who pushed against the tide as well. So, um, well done. Um, a little bit about me, in addition to uh, being Eugene Peterson's right-hand man. <laughs> I, I, I was, like Dan said, raised in a church-planting family, so, so much of my childhood was sort of spent moving around from church to church or from church plant to church plant. Uh, and I've got, I, I suppose, early childhood memories of probably waking up, you know, in the back of a building like this one, empty except for my parents talking to the last person before they left. And, uh, you know, um, uh, family and church for me is always blurred together. Um, it's blurred together to such an extent that, that I, um, I, I used to think every stranger really was like an uncle or an auntie. So I feel really at home in this environment, in, in the church environment. Um, and I think I'm maybe not overly wounded by my experience of growing up in the church. My, my parents did their best to, to also um, to, to be present to us as kids. But yeah, um, I, I love the church. I, I'm also aware of its failings, of its weaknesses. But I truly believe it is, it is the ark of salvation, as the, as the Orthodox Church talks about it, or the idea that there's no such thing as Christianity outside the church. This is where it is. This is where it happens. Uh, I'm not sentimental about church, I guess, in that sense. The church, to use Eugene Peterson's... Oh. <laughs> Sorry. to use uh, Eugene Peterson's language. <laughs> the church is the texted context to which we grow up to Christ in maturity. So the textured context in which we grow up in Christ to maturity, which sounds really nice, doesn't it? Um, except when you realise being told to grow up oh, oh, tends to always feel a bit like an insult. Um, 
you know, welcome to church, grow up, <laughs> buddy. Um, welcome to authentic Christian community. So, so picking up on this idea, this phrase of Eugene Peterson's about textured community or textured context, a little bit of my academic background. Um, I, I, my academic, academic background is in geography. Um, I, I always smile when, when Sarah, my wife, filled out our marriage certificate um, she put my occupation as geographer. <laughs> and uh, sometimes people will ask me, you know, am I really into crystals? Um, which, you know, crystals are cool, but um, I remind them that geography is different to geology. Uh, and, and if I had studied geology, I'd be much more employable. But here I am. Uh, not, not many people find themselves, in, I guess, in desperate need of a geographer. There's not many films where it's like, quick, get a geographer in here, we need a ge- <laughs> Um, And yet, for me, it's really a part of who I am. Um, So I've I've always felt these two concerns, if you like, a concern for for the church, for the people of God, and and an interest or a concern for geography, for space, for place, for how those things intersect. So it's nice, really nice, to have an opportunity to to reconcile those two things this morning. Um, Yeah, and I'm excited. I'm excited about the promise that this this series has held and, and will continue to hold. So, let's, let's dive in. So, excuse me if I get a little philosophical for a moment. Um, cool diagrams. <laughs> we, live, we live our lives, like Dan was saying, along, along these two axes of time and space. So, where they intersect is the present moment. And the present moment, it turns out, is quite a strange place because it turns out to be the only place that really actually exists. The past has already slipped away, and uh, we can't change it. The future, uh, the future is always before us, but it's not fated. So we don't have control over that either. We don't know for sure what it holds. All we have is the present moment. There we are. But where is the present? As soon as we identify the present, it's become the past. Even if we could divide time down to the smallest quantum, to the smallest fraction of a, of a moment, the present would still evade us because it slipped into the past. So in that sense, the present moment, or, or where time and space intersect, is um, eternal, in that it transcends time, it transcends space. That's why many orthodox theologians talk about the present moment in, as a sacrament, as a, as a means of grace, as a, as a place where we... Uh, where God's grace is mediated to us. I should point out that, that this is quite different from uh, um, more postmodern mantras about living in the moment, um, which evidently have, have nothing really to do with explaining what the present moment consists of. Indeed, encouragement in, in this discourse tends to be towards trying to empty yourself of all thoughts and, uh, and concerns, whereas for Christians... The present moment is pregnant with, with the presence of God. And so being, being in the moment means simply to stand before him and to be apprehended by him. The incarnation shows the extent to which God participates. I'm a little behind on my slides, sorry. Um, participates in his creation. Jesus not only became human, he became carbon, oxygen, calcium. He became the, 
he became of the same stuff that we're made out of and which makes up the whole universe. Christ shows that in his incarnation, he holds nothing back. So even going all the way into his creation and all the way into death and out the other end, into resurrection life. Therefore, the resurrection was the filling of all things with resurrection life, including time and space. The Christian attitude to time, you can see, is actually pretty different when we think about it in these terms. Time, which philosophers see as the harbinger of decay and death and entropy, for a Christian, time is the, uh, it's been conquered. It's been conquered by Christ. And it's been resurrected into its prototype, which is eternity. So time now is, is pregnant with eternity rather than pregnant with death. To live in the present for Christians, therefore, is to dwell in the fullness of this eternity. Which sounds good, doesn't it? So how do we, how do we actually do that? Well, this is where space comes in and, and this is where matter matters. As I said, time and space intersect to form the present moment. And uh, geographers like me call that uh, intersection place, which is a pretty easy word. Um, place is a meaningful site which combines location, locale, and sense of place. We've got a little geography lesson here, by the way, so hopefully you can bear with me. Um, places are made up of locations, locales, and a sense of place. They're all of those things together. They're not just bare coordinates on a map. And neither are they just a list of all the material stuff in a place. They're a meaningful site that, um, where we encounter a combination of materiality, meaning, and practice. The materiality and the meaning shape our practices in place. So for instance, if you wanted to know about where I grew up, you might ask me the GPS coordinates. Um, but if you did, I'd probably think you were some kind of commando or spy or something like that. <laughs> You might, um, or you know, you could ask me um, how many houses were around where you, where you grew up and, and how far was the post office away from where you grew up and um, what were the schools like? And then I'd be thinking, maybe you're a real estate agent. And <laughs> or you could ask me what memories I had of that place, what significant moments in my life happened there, how, the, how those memories and experiences shaped the contours of my um, my sense of who I could be in that place, what I could be, and um, then I'd be thinking you're, you're interested in my sense of place. So, so place is a combination of all of these things. What you've uh, been exploring is, is what it means to be an embodied people, but we're also emplaced people. We live our lives in places. None of us had any say over the body we were born into. None of us had any say over where we started this life. We just woke up to this world that was already on the go, it was already moving, full of material, infused with meaning and associated practices. But contrary to popular opinion, um, our place in the world is not, is not random. Indeed, scripture suggests that God is very much at work in this process of, uh, of determining where we belong. Paul hints at this in his his discourse with the Athenian philosophers. 
This is what he says to them. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mortals life and breath in all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope after him and find him. Paul might have been referring to a passage in Deuteronomy where, where Moses talks about God appointing the nations and giving them their boundaries of where they would live. Whatever the case. The key thing to notice is that Paul's suggesting that, uh, that, where, that, that the intersection of time and space is designed in such a way that um, it would encourage us to search after God. The word grope uh, in the NRSV literally means to feel after something, um, to feel the texture of something as if blind, searching for something. So, so, to make, so that seems to suggest that places have a, a sacramental quality in a sense. They, they are places where, where um, God's presence or God's reality is made visible through the texture of place and that God has ordained this for each of us. So just as we've talked about the present, you know, so the present moment as sacramental, we could also talk about our relationship to place as sacramental. Places are not just stuff. They're not just clods of matter. They're not just concrete, brick and mortar. They're, they're doorways opening into God. They're opening into the, the very life of God. So with that in mind, let's consider this phrase, an earthy church, which is a, a great phrase, Dan. Um, what might an earthy church mean in light of Paul's provocation here? Um, and what might it mean in light of Paul's provocation that, that Dan highlighted right at the beginning of your sermon series? Um, don't you know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Or to put it in more, con- more precise terms for us this morning, don't you, know, don't you know Central Vineyard that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? We might, I don't know, maybe struggle to believe that. Um, I mean, this is a beautiful church, don't get me wrong. Um, You're all beautiful people. Um, But the temple of the Holy Spirit. I mean, when we think about temples, I don't know about you, I think about incense and vaulted ceilings and, um, you know, chants and bells. And um, I don't tend to think about Epsom Girls Grammar on a Sunday morning, you know. Um, but I, I think part of the problem for us is that our metaphors for church really let us down. We, we often seem to default to thinking about the church as sort of like a building, you know, be it grand or be it humble, be it a bunker, be it a school hall. But it's a building with walls and a roof and a door, and the door separates what's inside from what's outside. And everything that's in that place is in church, and everything that's out isn't. Um, or perhaps we have a, a slightly more integrated view of church. Um, maybe we think about church as being a bit more like a bag of marbles. <laughs> um, so where we all come together on a Sunday, and then we all roll out into our week and into our worlds. And, um, which is a little bit better than, I think, the, the building metaphor, but still it's a bit weak, really. Um, I don't like to think of myself as a marble. I don't know about you. Um, <laughs> 
I think the problem is it's still too, it's far too individualistic, right? When we, what we need to see is, is, to, is that central vineyard is, this, is really the sum of all of these intersecting parts. It's, um, it's intersecting relationships each person here brings, which are all strung together in an interconnected web of life. There is never a moment at which you are not central vineyard. There's never a moment at which you're not part of the body of believers. The church sits a bit like a complex lattice overlaying society, overlaying the city, and over and your individual salvation is bound up in the whole. Like I said, there's no Christianity outside the church. So your your salvation is bound up in this in this body, the temple of the Holy Spirit. So an earthy church is neither an event, and it's not just a list of names. An earthy church, to quote Eugene Peterson again, um, is an appointed gathering of, of named people in particular places who practice a life of resurrection. And I think Dan would have given you that quote many, many times, but it's a good one. The temple of the Holy Spirit is this appointed gathering, this one, of these named people, and each of these people, each of you. This is the temple of the Holy Spirit. People who are living their lives awake to the reality of God, responsive to the God-ordained intersection of time and space that he has put together, and welcoming God's resurrection power into every moment and every place that God sends you. It may sound good. I think it sounds good. But in, in, again, what does it really look like in practical terms? Walter Brueggemann measures, uh, defines mature materiality as participation in, attentiveness to, and loyalty to place. He also suggests two questions ought to inform our thought and action around what it means to be an earthy church. And these are, where am I supposed to be? And how should I inhabit this place or that place? These questions should be read as both as individual questions and as collective questions. So in other words, where am I as a member of this body, as a member of Central Vineyard, supposed to be? And how should I, as a member of this body of Central Vineyard, inhabit that place. Going back to, to Paul's speech to the Athenians, um, mature materiality begins with an agreement that God has ordained certain times and certain places for us to inhabit. And this, maybe that sounds really obvious, I don't know, but it's highly countercultural. I'd say. We value, we value hypermobility. We uh, you know, in terms of our ability to quickly travel between places, but also in terms of our ability to quickly and imaginatively travel to different worlds, to, to lose ourselves in media. We value um, being elsewhere. No one wants to be trapped in place. No one likes it. <laughs> there, are, there are so many great songs, you know, about um, leaving home or about growing up and getting out of this town. Um, so many great films. It's such a deeply valued part of our culture is to get away from here, wherever we are. There are so few films about uh, the joy of staying 
or the joy of, of slowly working to transform a place, to transform the place God has given us. Maybe we were born to stay. It doesn't have the same ring to it. <laughs> but um, yeah, to, to agree with God, that's, that's what it's all about, to agree with God that where we are is where we're supposed to be. And that means rejecting that big cultural tide that we're in, which is to say anywhere but here, anywhere but now. So mature materiality is about taking responsibility for the present moment instead of disappearing into grandiose dreams or anxious nightmares about the future or disappearing into... um, nostalgia or or cringing recollections of the past. Mature materiality demands that we be here, right here, right now, because that is where God has put us. It's about agreeing with the imaginative and material sufficiency of this moment, of our neighborhood, the local time and local place, which turns out to be cram-packed full of God's grace. Wendell Berry writes, to preserve our places and to be at home in them, it is necessary to fill them with imagination, to imagine as as well as see what is in them, not to fill them with the junk of fantasy and unconsciousness, for that is no more than the industrial economy would do, but to see them first clearly with the eyes and then to see them with the imagination in their sanctity as belonging to creation. This is to live in accordance with Scripture, is to live in accordance with the world of the Bible, which was written exclusively almost by farmers and agrarian prophets who lived in the land, who were surrounded by animals. Um, it's the, the, the world of the Bible is deeply immersed in place and deeply immersed in an appreciation and concern for the health of places for the integrity of the land. And as we begin to discover the sacramental nature of of, uh, places, of the places that God's put us, we can begin to form answers, I think, to the second of Brueggemann's questions. How should I, as a member of Central Vineyard, how should I inhabit this place? In a commoditized culture, the natural response to that question is to inhabit space as a user, as a consumer, as an extractor, as an exploiter. Get whatever you can out of a place and get out before it places any demands on you. This attitude really is what undergirds our whole um, national obsession with real estate, I think. It expresses this national obsession with acquiring place undergirds... um, undergirds our whole culture at the moment, and it expresses itself in a a predatory system that's produced an epidemic of displacement, of displaced people. And a mature material response to this question of how we should inhabit the place God has appointed for us is to consider ourselves not as user, consumer, extractor, exploiter, but as, as an heir, as a neighbor, as a partner and as a citizen in place. 
And I should say that none of these, none of these roles are easy. None of the stuff that you've been wrestling with and that throughout this series is easy. Um, I teach in a ministry training college and we teach systematic theology. And whenever we're sort of teaching around the, the creeds and stuff like that, it's like, what I notice is that heresy is really easy. Heresy is just like simple and we default to it. And heretical Christianity is always popular because it's easy. It's, it's always in season because it doesn't really demand that much of us. But um, orthodoxy, on the other hand, is hard. It's really difficult. It bends our minds. It, it, it demands things of us. And yet orthodoxy is the only place really where true life is to be found. So we'll always default to consumer mentalities um, unless we challenge each other to grow into maturity and to surrender to the grace of the Holy Spirit. So this is not, um, this is not uh, about putting in more effort. It's about partnering with what God's already doing in you. So to be an earthy church means doing your, your best to understand yourself as an heir. What does that mean? An heir to the place that you are in, an heir to the intersection of time and space. It means receiving your place as a gift. It's a gift from those who have gone before you, and it's a gift that you're looking after for the person yet to come. Who built who built this building? I don't know, I saw a name on the, on the door, maybe it was her, but um, you know, who laid these roads that got us here? Who, who built this city? Um, those people who went before us, they stewarded this gift for us. We're, we are the recipients of it. We're heirs of place, you know. It's, it's come to us. All histories, yeah, they coalesce in place. And um, I think this is the essence of, of kaitiakitanga. I'm no, I'm no expert on this, um, and there may be much more um, wise people about this in this room than I, but I think kaitiakitanga is not, is not the possession of land as property, but it's a willingness to take responsibility for land, for the health of the land, and to do so on, in, to do so on behalf of, of the ancestors, those who um, gave the land to you, and to do so on behalf of those yet to come. Ancient Israel practiced, I think, a form of this, a form of kaitiakitanga, um, in the sense that land was allotted to certain families and um, with the intention that they'd care for it, they'd look after it, and they would pass it on to the next generation. And that's why Scripture so often um, articulates this, God's um, displeasure um, about uh, things like moving ancient landmarks or encroaching on the fields of orphans and pronounces woe to those who add house to house and field to field till no space is left and they live alone in the land. In Aotearoa, uh, the legacy of disposition remains an open wound, and gentrification uh, is an aggressive, um, aggressively making it worse, deepening that crisis. So what's an earthy church to do? An earthy church is called to work against that. An earthy church is called to work against predatory approaches to place. An earthy church is called to care for place, for the neighborhood with an eye for future generations. And not just our children, but our neighbor's children. An earthy church recognizes place as a sacred inheritance. To be an earthy church means to occupy the role of neighbor. My wife, Sarah, I'm not sure if she's in here, but um, we got really wonderful neighbors in Swanson. We 
you know, have a great relationship. We swap veggies and, um, yeah, it's really easy, very wholesome and very nice. <laughs> but to be neighbours includes this, but it also goes, it goes beyond that. It also goes, for, in our case, for recognising that um, the, the homeless guy at the train station is also a neighbour and the, the pensioner who, who always waves at us out her window when we walk to the dairy, she's also a neighbour. And perhaps even the people who are moving into the new, new subdivisions up the road, they're neighbours too. The mandate to, to love your neighbour, Paul reckons, sums up the entire Torah. It's a, it's a category, neighbour is a category that's roomy enough for anyone to fit into it. And when we pray, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, why not um, challenge yourself to say, let your kingdom come in Sandringham. Let your kingdom come in Ponsonby. What would it look like for the kingdom of God to come in Epsom? What would it look like for the kingdom of God to come in Blockhouse Bay? What would that look like? Begin to imagine that. Begin to um, pray that in specific terms about the places that God has put you. Being a neighbour means having a stake in the neighbourhood. It means... Um, yeah, it means belonging to the neighbourhood. And that's tricky, I think, for probably lots of us who, lots of people here are renters. Um, it's really difficult to hold that identity when you're a renter. There's a real coming and going, and it makes you, it's tempting to just disengage from place. It's tempting to treat place as something that you can just use, um, to slip back into that consumer mentality to place. When Sarah and I were renting in Hearn Bay, um, we found it really difficult to connect with our neighbours. The first day we moved into the flat, um, we were putting all of our stuff in and out of our doors, and we got a knock at the door from our neighbour, and expecting a, hey, welcome to the neighbourhood, instead we got, can you not slam your door? <laughs> I was like, oh. Um, and then the next day, our neighbour towed our car away. So... Um, <laughs> So it was a really rough start to the neighbourhood. Um, and, you know, everything, everything, within me, um, everything within me at that point wanted to disengage and be like, ah, oh, man, Hernbay sucks. Um, I resisted the temptation to do that. I resisted the temptation to write an angry letter to my neighbour. I did brew on it for quite a while. Um, but then instead I was like, okay, I'm going to give them a chocolate fish because that's just going to help me to do something. And I gave them a chocolate fish and totally weirded them out. Um, <laughs> but it, what it did was it just helped me to not disengage with the place. I was like, I'm here in Hearn Bay. I know I don't belong in Hearn Bay, but I'm here, you know, and, and I'm going to be a neighbour here, and I'm going to have a stake in this neighbourhood. So even when you're renting, don't disengage from place. Be a neighbour. An earthy church will define itself as a neighbour to, to all of the communities it transects. An earthy church pushes through all that disappointment that's there, all the hard stuff of being a neighbour when people don't really want to be your neighbour. And this connects to the, to the third and fourth of these responses to place, to understand ourselves as partners with place and to understand ourselves as citizens of place rather than just mere owner-occupiers. Which is to say, an earthy church works shoulder to shoulder with other institutions. It works shoulder to shoulder for the betterment of the place it's in. It's not just about its own agenda. 
It's about advancing other people's agendas as well. So it's not easy, but um, this is what it means to, to grow up into mature faith. It would be so much easier to focus on the sacral stuff, to focus on the, um, you know, the, the spiritual over the material. The demands of that kind of church, of that kind of Christianity, are so much easier. Um, you know, but the link to justice and God's presence is unavoidable. Israel's occupancy of the land was, uh, was contingent upon the way they treated their neighbor. But for Israel, the land was not seen as a reward, and it wasn't seen as property either. The land was a means of accessing God. So it wasn't a reward for good behavior. That's a real modern way of thinking about land. And when we read that into the Bible, we're, we're bringing a foreign thought to the Bible. Um, the land, the land, the, the narrow, hilly strip of land belonging to God, really. It was, it was Yahweh's country, this little funny piece of land between the River Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea, this, this hilly strip of land. Um, it, was, it was God's place and God invited them to be there with him. It wasn't about a reward. God's presence um, continues to be linked to the land, uh, but we no longer look at that particular strip of land in Israel as any more holy than any other land. There's a great story of a um, folk artist called Harlan Hubbard who um, was commissioned by, by his local church to produce a painting of the Jordan River. So... The church wanted a nice picture of the Jordan River to hang in their sanctuary and go, oh, that's beautiful, that's where Jesus was baptized. So what he did instead was he painted them a picture of their local river, the Ohio River, which is terribly polluted. Um, because for, for, for Harvard, he thought, well, you know, with tactfulness, the church ought to think about their own water catchment before starting to think about the Holy Land, you know, thousands of kilometers away. And in this sense... He was challenging his church, he was challenging this church to be an earthy church, to take responsibility for place. Challenging them to grow up into maturity. So as we, as we come into landing this morning, I'd like to just close with a, a benediction from, well, a benediction of sorts from the poet Wendell Berry. Because he says uh, in so few words what I've tried to offer this morning. The poem is called How to Be a Poet to remind myself and the reason I want to give this to you is because I believe this I don't want to do an exegesis of a poem I think it's like trying to dissect a flower um, a poem is a poem but this poem to me um, is a bit of a guide for what it means to be in place and to respond to place so here's what it says make a place to sit down sit down be quiet you must depend upon affection, reading, knowledge, skill, more of each than you have, inspiration, work, growing older, patience, for patience joins time to eternity. Any readers who like your poems, doubt their judgment. Breathe with unconditional breath, the unconditioned air. Shun electric wire. Communicate slowly. Live a three-dimensioned life. Stay away from screens. 
Stay away from anything that obscures the place it is in. There are no unsacred places. There are only sacred places and desecrated places. Accept what comes from silence. Make the best you can of it, of the little words that come out of the silence, like prayers prayed back to the one who prays. Make a poem that does not disturb the silence from which it came. God bless you, Central Vineyard. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, Yehoah. I want to invite you to stand. We're going to finish this series by um, taking a moment just to pray and consider. Uh, If you are visiting today for the first time, there's on the on the table as you leave, there's a little series companion that we made, which has each of the weeks we've just been through as a bit of a space to consider a bit deeper. And um, we'd love you to help yourself to one of those. They're just a little, a little bit of creation we made, a little physical thing. But as we stand and as we finish this gathering today, uh, I do think the sentiment of what Johnny has brought and also just what the series has tried to hold us in is really important just to consider again. Uh, this time and this place matters to God and it matters to us. And we want to connect our hearts to that. We want to connect our hearts to that. I believe all good mission starts from here. I believe all good neighboring starts from here. The connection of this. My desire for this church is that we'd stop thinking someone else is going to do everything for us. My desire for this church, the 4 p.m. gathering at Grey Lynn, and the starting gathering in Newland is that would be missional people that bless and serve the city to life. And it happens in our homes, it happens in our workplaces, it will happen this afternoon if we'll let it. It all depends on the posture in which we're going to walk out of here. And the asking of this, this series has been, are we awake to realizing what God's calling us to do? So God, forgive us for where we have let other people do something you've called us to do. Forgive us. And we commit ourselves and humble ourselves again to being the people of light in the city. Not the only people, but being the people you've called us to be. You have called us and named us the people of light. We are your church. And as such, you say that we are like a lampstand holding your light that shines into the city. And may we hold it well. May we hold it on mission. May we hold it in acts of justice. May we hold it as we consider the very physical world that we live in. May we hold it as we consider our news feed, as we think about the things we talk about with our work colleagues. Or as we sit in the back of an Uber and we get taken around the city by an Uber driver. May we think about it as we handle our paycheck this week. May we think about it as we handle our diaries. May we consider what it is to be a person of the kingdom of God here, now, in this place. God, we commit our lives to that. That call, that invitation. 
You beckon us, come and see. You say, come and see. And so, Lord, we choose to come and see and to experience and to live in your way. Your way is a way of life, not just a way of mental ascent, not just a way of a spiritual experience. It is a way of very earthy life. So, God, as we all walk out the door, adjust in us something that would help us to live this way better. Adjust in us all a little something, a small step we can take, a small increment, a small practice that would help us to live this a little bit better. For you are in the business of making all things new. And God, I believe that that starts with us and our very real lives. So we submit them to you, God. Come and have your way. Good God, loving God, God of justice, mercy and kindness and compassion. Come and have your way with us, we pray, as your body, as your earthy church. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, we pray. Amen. God bless you. Hey, send in your thoughts. <laughs> Let us know. Let us know what you're thinking about with this series. And uh, just so you know, we're going to produce a second little book of this series, which is going to have uh, Ludwig's awesome circles material that he's been writing added as an appendix so that people can go deeper for longer thinking about the things of this series. And uh, we are going to be starting a new series in August. So we're going to take July to just do a couple of things for these next few weeks. And in August, we're going to be starting a new series. It's called Be With, Be Like. It's going to be a series on the fruit of the Spirit. And we're going to be looking at what it is to abide with the Spirit and to then bear the fruits of the Spirit uh, in the most un-Sunday school way like hopefully possible. All right? Okay. So God bless you. Have a wonderful Sunday. Enjoy your Sabbath. And uh, for those of you who are helping us to pack up and all those things, we greatly appreciate you. Have a wonderful Sunday afternoon, everyone.